Please open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3. It can be found on page 775 in your pew Bibles. Last fall, we heard from Jonah's chapter 1 and 2, and now this evening we'll continue with the Word of God given to us in Jonah chapter 3. We'll be reading the entire chapter together. Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord, since it's been a while since we looked at Jonah's chapter 1 and 2, we wanted to offer just a brief summary of where we've been. If you remember, Jonah's chapter 1 and 2 were divided into three sermons, and you can almost think of them as three different scenes of the first act of a play. First, we had Jonah being called by the Lord and how he responded to that call. And secondly, in the second sermon, we saw how Jonah interacted with the Gentiles around him. In chapter 1, that was the Gentiles on the ship. And then after God acted, in chapter 2, we saw how Jonah prayed to the Lord. Well, if, if you notice from the beginning of chapter 3, it seems like we are restarting that same pattern, given the similarity of the words. And yes, you could see the same pattern in Jonah chapter 3 and 4. We have the same three scenes in just Act 2. And today we have before us God's calling to Jonah and his interaction with the Gentiles. So, looking back at chapter 2 especially, we saw how God was merciful to Jonah. And you would think with the great mercy that God showed to Jonah, that Jonah would have a complete change of heart, seeing how merciful God was to him. But, if we're honest, is that always how we respond in our flesh? We have been shown great mercy, but we don't always respond with 
an outpouring of love to God. Sometimes in our sinful nature, we receive God's mercy and we want to claim it for our own because we think we deserve it. And it's our pride that leads us to do that. So this, this evening, we want to look at how Jonah and the Ninevites responded to God's mercy. And we want to consider for ourselves, can God's mercy really save the worst of sinners? And in Jonah's chapter, Jonah chapter 3 here, we we're going to see that the Lord reveals the extent of his mercy by pursuing sinners. And we'll see that in three ways. First, how Jonah is recommissioned. Second, how Nineveh repents. And third, how the Lord relents. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4 and how Jonah is recommissioned. First, we see, as I mentioned already, how the beginning of chapter 3 is almost a near repetition of the beginning of chapter 1. The first verse only has a couple words different. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, and then we, we see how God repeats his calling. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So what are we supposed to see from this? Well, first of all, God will have a messenger sent to Nineveh, whether Jonah likes it or not. God was not discouraged that Jonah disobeyed him the first time, but he calls him back a second time, sending him there again. If you remember, we compared Jonah to the nation of Israel and the Ninevites to the nations of all the world. And that same message rings true. God's desire for the nations to come to love him and know him will not be thwarted by the disobedience of his covenant people. He will keep calling them to go back and to tell of his wonders to the nations around them. I think we can see how this plays out even in our own homes sometimes. You know, parents, you oftentimes give your children chores to do, and especially when they're young, I think you've all had times where you thought, it sure would be a lot easier if I would just clean my kid's room myself than to keep telling them to clean it themselves. But what would happen if you did what was easier, if you just cleaned their room for them? Well, they would never learn the responsibility of doing it themselves. And so you know that for their own good, it's better that you keep telling them again and again to clean their room themselves, to do their chores on their own ambition. And we don't always want to hold their hands and do it for them so that they will be equipped for what comes later in life. Well, it's similar to how God is treating Jonah here. If God wants the repentance of the nations, he doesn't need people to do that, but God chooses to work through people so that they can learn what it means and what it looks like to reflect God's love and mercy for those whom he desires to know. God desires his people's obedience, and that is why he comes again and again reminding his people of what he wants them to do. And then we come to Jonah actually obeying God's calling to him in verses 3 and the beginning of verse 4. And we read there that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. How different that is from Jonah arising in chapter 1 and going down, down, down to the depths of the ship in disobedience. 
But before we give too much praise to Jonah for obeying, I I want to reflect a bit on what happens when we obey. Because sometimes we obey without truly having a change of heart. I think we, we see that again in our own family lives. And kids, you, you're told to do something by your parents and maybe you don't do it the first time and you get a consequence. But what happens the next time? Okay, you'll, you'll obey, you'll do the task. But is your heart really into it? Are you just trying to avoid the consequences? So even though Jonah's obeying here, we'll see later in chapter 4 where his, where his heart truly lies. But at this point... We don't know. Is Jonah's heart truly changed or is he just obeying to get out of the punishment that he received the first time? You know, sometimes that we think, is that, is that really how it works? Didn't the prophet Samuel tell King Saul that to obey is better than sacrifice? Doesn't mean, that mean that obedience is the best we can offer? Well, I think the, what the book of 1 Samuel tells us is that obedience needs to come from the heart. That's why we say we know that King David was a man after God's own heart and he replaced King Saul. So yes, obedience is good, but obedience is not the be-all, end-all. Obedience needs to flow from the heart. But nevertheless, Jonah does obey and he goes to Nineveh and gives it, proclaims the message that God gave him. And what is the message that God gave him? Jonah called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, as with many of the words in this book of Jonah, there are, there are differences in translation here that can be seen. First of all, Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word there that's translated as overthrown is a word that can really mean to turn or to overturn, to overthrow. So in a way, what Jonah is saying is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed or will it be Turned, reformed. There's ambiguity in the words, but I think it's clear given how Jonah says it and how the people of Nineveh respond that everybody who heard those words heard it as Nineveh will be overthrown, as our Bible translates it. You can think of this, we had our conference the other weekend at, for this church over in Cedar Lake, and if someone asked you, well, how was the food? And you responded, oh, the food at the conference was fine. Well, you'd, they, people would realize, oh, it was very fine food, the way you said that. But you could have said, too, oh, the food of the conference was fine. And they would get the feeling that, oh, it wasn't that great. Even the same word can mean different things. But the way you say it brings out the meaning. So everybody that hears these words believes that Nineveh will truly be destroyed in these 40 days. But notice the word that God tells Jonah to use leaves open the option of what God will later do, as we'll see. And then in 40 days, what is that supposed to mean? Well, the number 40 should remind us of lots of different biblical passages. For the number 40 generally symbolizes a period of testing, trial, or probation. You can think of the 40 days of rain that God sent on the earth in the days of Noah. You can think of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites endured in the book of Numbers. But keep in mind that 40 doesn't have to be literal. When Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, the sense of that is, you, Nineveh, are under a period of probation. And if you fail, you will be destroyed. 
And that comes out because we know that roughly 150 years after this message, Nineveh truly was destroyed. So in a way, God's word still came true, even though he relented, as we'll see. But the threat to Nineveh is real nonetheless. Now, a lot of people get hung up on, you know, are these really the only words that Jonah says to the people of Nineveh? You know, this book is in the Minor Prophets, and in the Hebrew, there's only five words of actual prophecy here. And the debates will, will never end on whether Jonah actually said more than this. But I think what we're supposed to take away from the briefness of Jonah's message is, where does the confidence in changed hearts lie? Is it in the number of words that we say, or is it in, or is it in the one who gives those words? You know, the Holy Spirit can do work wonders with whatever words, whatever faithful words are said, long or short. And that should give us confidence, seeing that this brief message that we are given of Jonah, God uses to work in wonderful ways. Wonderful ways that lead Nineveh to repent, as we see in our second point. So in verses 5 through 9, we have recorded for us Nineveh's repentance. Now I skipped over a brief statement in verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. What, what are these phrases supposed to mean? Well, I think in the, in the context of what happens here in the book of Jonah, what we see, how they, how they respond, the sense of these words is, Nineveh is a large city, and anybody who was going in there and that wanted to preach a message to reach the whole city, it should have taken him three days to get that message out, to traverse back and forth through the city. But Jonah, he is only beginning to go into the city. He only makes it one day in, and already there are signs of repentance in Nineveh. That is how powerfully God is working through these words of Jonah. Then how powerfully is he working? Well, we're given the signs of repentance in these verses. First of all, the king's actions in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. These words are beautifully arranged to show us exactly what the king is doing here. He is throwing away all the signs of royalty, getting off his throne, and taking off his robe, and he is entering him, putting himself into a state of humiliation. He replaces his robe with ashes, and he replaces his throne, or he replaces his robe with sackcloth, and he replaces his throne with ashes. Now, this, the sackcloth and ashes, these are signs of grieving and repentance. Sackcloth is often, if you look in a Bible dictionary, it's used for, in times of grieving or to show repentance for sin. Ashes show extreme grief or repentance or humiliation. And then what the king prescribes, fasting, shows remorse for wrongdoing, an expression of mourning. All three of these, sackcloth, ashes, and fasting, are pointing to how mournful, how sorry the king of Nineveh and the people are for the sins that they have committed. And, you know, we may be surprised that, I mean, these people with such a short message, how can they respond this way? But what do we expect when God's word goes forth? Do we expect the word to, be, to work this powerfully or not? If Jonah's words can work this kind of repentance among the people of Nineveh, one of the most evil nations on the earth in that day, 
How much can the Spirit do with words spoken today? And I think the question for us is, do we expect that? When we witness to our neighbors, do we expect them to reject us? Do we expect them to act like our words are vain and empty? Do we expect them to ignore us and to never come to church? Or do we expect that the Spirit will work? Do we have confidence that the Spirit, if He takes our words and He desires, He can work a miracle in the lives of those we witness to? And maybe more importantly, do we pray for this? When we pray for our neighbors, do we pray just to make sure we've crossed it off our checklist? Lord, I prayed for my neighbors. I think I've done a good job. Or when we pray, do we pray in confidence that, Lord, use my witness to work miracles in those I witness to. Turn their lives around, Lord. Well, these, these, the way that Nineveh responds to Jonah's words should give us confidence that he can still work in those same ways today. But then in verse 9, the king in his declaration gives us the reason for why we can have such confidence. The king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. These words stand out as a beautiful statement of how Jonah's God, the God that the king of Nineveh just got introduced to, is unlike any other God that they knew. It's interesting to, to, to study how the cultures of the ancient Near East would normally respond to threats of judgment. For they were their man-made religions. And what do we expect from man-made religions? Man-made responses from their, from their gods and their idols. The, the normal response for peoples of the, the Near East in times of judgment would have been sacrifice. Let's make appeasement to our gods. What can we give up in order to make the gods happy so that they won't judge us? But that's not what the king prescribes, is it? Nowhere in here is the king saying, sacrifice anything you can think of to try to get this judgment off our backs. No, they show signs of repentance. And they recognize that this God that Jonah speaks of, he's not like our gods. He may actually relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish if we show remorse for our sins. And thinking about this phrase, do we expect mercy from God for ourselves and for others? When when do we expect God to give mercy to us? Do we expect him to only be merciful to us when we do the right things, when we act the right way? Or do we expect and trust in God's mercy because of what he has done for us? And when we repent as he had called us to do. You know, we, we are quick to recognize that repentance is what the Bible calls us to rather than penance as the Roman Catholic Church prescribes. But sometimes I think we still fall into the habits of trying to do penance in our own way. We recognize that, oh, I have, I have sinned and I have grieved God. Maybe if I pray a little bit more, maybe if I read my Bible a little bit more, maybe if I pay pay better attention in church, then God will be more happy with me and he will forgive me of my sins. You people of God, it's not our actions that earn us God's mercy. 
It is what Christ has done on the cross that allows God to be merciful to us. And God desires a repentant heart that recognizes our sin and turns to him in faith so that he can smile upon us once again and bless us. But in what Nineveh is showing in their repentance, what was Israel supposed to see? We've talked a lot, we talked a lot about in chapters 1 and 2 how this message from Jonah was to be received by the people of Israel and thus by us as well. Well, this repentance that Nineveh shows was supposed to be a rebuke to God's people, his covenant people, Israel. For God, God had sent prophet after prophet to his people, Israel, speaking of these same messages, repent or you will be put into exile. Repent before God turns his back on you. And what did Israel do? They, they did not repent. They ignored the prophets. Israel took God's prophets and made them, and they mocked them, they flogged them, they put them in prison, they put them in chains. Some they stoned, some they killed with the sword. Israel refused to listen to God's prophets. And what does God say about their refusal to listen? Well, already back in Moses' day, in Deuteronomy 32, and he was giving Israel his parting blessing, Moses said these words, "'They have made me jealous with what is no God.'" They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. This is God demonstrating what he prophesied through the prophet Moses. These words of Nineveh repenting to Jonah's message are supposed to provoke Israel to recognize God could have been, would have been merciful to us if we would have responded this way. You know, likely the, the first Israelites to read this book of Jonah were ones who came back from the exile. And when they read these words, Jonah went to Nineveh, preached the word, and they repented, and God relented. It should have brought them to their knees. Lord, you would have had mercy on us had we repented. And they should have made them repent as well. So that's what the people of Israel were supposed to see through this message. And it's the same message that we can take away from it too. If God has mercy on an evil people like Nineveh, he will have mercy on us and all those who repent as well. When God's message goes forth and people repent, God is faithful to be merciful and it should not surprise us. But now turning to verse 10, the final verse of our text, we see how the Lord relents. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now it's it's verses like these that they show us God's mercy, but they can also be a little bit confusing for Christians as well. For we hear often that God is an unchanging God. He's the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be tomorrow. So how can the Bible speak of God as relenting? Doesn't that mean that God is not the same as he was the day before? Well, I want to encourage us to not fear these kind of words. For when the Bible speaks of God relenting, it's a type of what we call anthropomorphism. It's talking about God in a way from a human perspective. Now, you can think of 
not only the way it ta- the Bible talks about God's strong arm or the shelter of his wings, but specifically in a passage like Genesis 6, when God is looking at the sin of the earth, it tells us that God saw the sin of all mankind. He regretted that he had made them, and he was grieved. Very similar language, but we know that God does not have eyes. He can't see the same way we see. But these are ways of speaking about God that make sense to us, his people. So why would the Bible use this kind of language that sounds like he is changing? I think the sense we're supposed to get from this is it shows that God is interested in the Gentile peoples for their own sake. God does not want people to be destroyed. Ezekiel tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but his desire is that the wicked will turn from their way and live. So when, God, when these words are used that God relented, it highlights for us that God is pleased when people repent and turn to him and trust that he will be merciful to them. And God does not delight to just destroy them just because he can. I think we also need to recognize, too, that God is sovereign. He knew how Nineveh would respond to Jonah's preaching. But yet his, his message was still true. If Nineveh doesn't repent, they would be destroyed. And if they don't repent, he, he will be merciful. And I think the, the calling for us here is that if we reflect on our own hearts, we recognize that we often struggle to reflect God in this way. How often in our hearts do we delight in the thought of the wicked being destroyed? You know, earlier in chapter 1, one of the examples used was, do we want God's word to go forth to a city like San Francisco where we know how much evil is going on there? You know, sometimes people might joke, you know, if an earthquake hit and San Francisco fell into the sea, would that be for better or for worse? Well, we may joke about the consequences of that, but our hearts should not delight in the death of the wicked. It should be our desire, just as God's desire, that they would repent and live. So, instead of praying that they will be judged for their actions, we should also be praying that, Lord, Send your missionary, send your word to those dark cities where so much evil is happening. And may your word go forth powerfully and bring repentance among those peoples. And the other thing I want to highlight in this, the, the language of the Lord relenting is that the only way we can talk of the Lord relenting is if God has covenanted with people on earth. You know, the the way God covenants with us goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But God has created the world, mankind, and everything around us. So mankind can put no demands on God. I think a good way of illustrating this, again, goes back to life life in the home. Imagine kids that your, your parents prepare a meal, put it on the table, and put food on your plate, and you eat every bit of food without complaining one bit. Do you have a right to say, okay, mom and dad, I ate all my food without complaining. I deserve to be taken to Sky Zone now. Like, where does that come from? You don't deserve a reward for simply eating the food that your parents gave you. I think if you, if you tried to say that, your parents would say, 
not so fast. We're the ones that worked. We're the ones that bought the food. We're the ones that made the food. We're the ones that put it on your plate. It was your responsibility to eat it. But imagine this. If your parents at the beginning of a week say, okay, kids, if all of you can eat your food without complaining for a whole week straight, we'll take you to Sky Zone. Then at the end of that week, if you have successfully completed the task they gave you, then there can be a reward because they promised it. They covenanted with you, if you will. That's similar to how it works with God and his creation. On our own, we have no claim on God. We cannot say, God, you owe us anything. It is only because God has covenanted with Adam, with Noah, with David, that we, can, that we have a claim to say, Lord, I am sorry for my sin. Please accept me. So this language of God relenting reflects the fact that God has covenanted with his people out of his love and mercy for those whom he has created. And this, this language is reflected in Jeremiah chapter 18, where God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. We see that God has made these promises. So when the Bible speaks of him relenting, it has not come out of the blue. It's God being faithful to the promises that he has made to his creation, to his people. So the question for us remains, do we see God's mercy as something owed to us or something he graciously extends to us? When God is merciful, when he forgives us our sins, when we can feel that God is working in our hearts, do we pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what, I knew I was a pretty good person. I'm really glad that God recognized that and has been merciful to me. If so, we need to repent of that. For we would have no ability to show love to God if he had not first loved us. It is God who graciously extends his hand and grabs us and turns our lives around so that we can faithfully serve him. And we know also that ultimately the reason why God can show mercy to Jonah, as he did by giving him a second chance to fulfill his mission, the only reason that God could be merciful to Nineveh and spare them from destruction, the only reason that God can be merciful to us is because of what Christ did, our mediator, in his work on the cross. Jesus himself bore the punishment that Jonah, Nineveh, and us deserved so that we can receive mercy. So in conclusion, I want to share how now Jonah's message Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In some ways, it sounds like such a foolish message. It's so short. How are the people supposed to know what to do with such a short message? But is that not what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians when he says that the message of the cross is foolish to the world, but yet that's the message that Paul chooses to speak because in that message is the power of God. God chose to work through the cross such folly to Gentiles and to a stumbling block to Jews because God knew that was the only way how his justice could be satisfied and how he could show mercy to sinners. And Jonah's preaching and Nineveh's repentance give us a glimpse 
of how Jesus and the apostles, how their preaching would lead to the conversion of the Gentiles. You, know, you think of how the message of the Old Testament is so centered on Israel, except for what we see here in Nineveh in the book of Jonah. In the, in the New Testament, once Christ has arisen, the apostles begin to preach to the Gentiles, and there is such great response of repentance and faith in God. You know, this, this chapter 3 here in Jonah gives us a glimpse of what God would work once his new covenant was established through his son, Jesus Christ. And even today, this message is still the same. The world is still full of people who need God's mercy. People that live in places that remind us much of Nineveh, places of evil and violence. But the message still remains, and they must be told again and again and again. There is a God who will destroy sinners, but who is merciful to those who repent. So dear people of God, may we, re- may we repent of our reluctance to extend God's mercy to sinners and let us boldly proclaim God's covenant mercy to all who will hear. And may God bless that word as it goes forth and may he work powerfully through it. Amen. Let us pray. Our covenant, merciful God, as we draw before you at the close of this time of meditating on your word, we acknowledge that you are a merciful God. Lord, it is only because of your Son and his work on this earth, his death and resurrection, that we can find favor in your eyes. Lord, may we recognize how sinful we are, but yet how you looked on us in love and chose us to be your children. Lord, may we not be selfish with your mercy, but may we Proclaim it boldly to the whole world, much as how Jonah proclaimed that message to the people of Nineveh. And Lord, may we have confidence that your word will work repentance. Lord, give us boldness to preach and to tell others about you. And may we expect that there will be a great harvest when your word goes forth. Lord, we cling to your covenant faithfulness and the promises you have made to your people that you will turn back from your, your judgment on sin and that you will be merciful to those who repent and turn to you. Lord, may we go forth in this week encouraged and equipped to share your message of mercy for the people whom you have chosen. Lord, this is all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.